Last week, the IRS held a public hearing on the Opportunity Zones program. Who spoke at the hearing, and what did they say? And which topics received the most attention? Find out on today's episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Are you an Opportunity Zones fund sponsor, real estate developer, or service provider? The Opportunity Zones database now offers multiple sponsorship and advertising opportunities that can help you reach a targeted audience. To learn more and to download our media kit, visit opportunitydb.com slash advertise. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Today, we're taking a break from our usual format. I do not have a guest on this episode, but instead... I will be recapping the IRS hearing on qualified opportunity funds that took place last Thursday, Valentine's Day, February 14th. So first, a little bit of a background on how we got here and a high-level overview of where we're at in the process. So the legislative process was finalized when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed in December of 2017. The Opportunity Zones program was one small part of that large act. IRS regulations, however, on the Opportunity Zones program have still not been finalized. In fact, it took nearly a year before the first tranche of proposed rules were published. That just happened last October 2018. And this hearing that took place last Thursday was focused primarily on that first tranche. When the first tranche of rules were published in October, it opened up a public comment period that lasted till nearly the end of last year. The IRS received over 150 comments from stakeholders in the Opportunity Zones industry, and they scheduled a hearing for January 10th. But as you know, we had a lengthy government shutdown that lasted from the end of 2018 through the first few weeks of January in 2019. So that hearing that was originally scheduled for January 10th got pushed back until February 14th. That's where we're at now. What's going to happen next is the IRS will take all of the public comments and the speaker's testimony into consideration, and they will release their second tranche of proposed regulations. Again, these are just proposed regulations. Those will come out maybe by the end of this month, February 2019, but probably not for a few weeks. Maybe we're looking at the beginning or mid-March of 2019. That will open up a second round of a public comment period, and eventually, later this year, we will have a second hearing on the first two tranches of the proposed regulations. That may happen by the end of spring, but we're not entirely sure. It's kind of up to the IRS at this point as to how fast they're able to work on this. After that second hearing occurs, we'll there will probably be a period of a few more weeks before we get the final IRS regulations on the Opportunity Zones program and on qualified opportunity funds. What I've heard is that those final regulations are expected to be published at the earliest by late spring or early summer of this year, 2019. So let's discuss 
this hearing that took place last Thursday. First of all, full disclosure, I personally was not at this hearing. I wish I could have made it, but I had other plans and was not able to be in Washington, D.C. that day. So this recap is based off of reports that I've read. It's based off it's based off the public comment letters that are publicly accessible at the Federal Register, and it's based off of the live tweets of several members of the Opportunity Zones community who live tweeted the hearing at hashtag Opportunity Zones IRS hearing. These people were Michael Novogratik, Rachel Riley, Benga Agilori, and Jill Homan in particular. Then there were several others who were live tweeting the hearing as well and offering their thoughts in real time, and I, I really appreciate them doing that. And I know a lot of other stakeholders in the community and and other people with their eye on on this on these regulations appreciated that since the hearing was not broadcast uh, or live streamed in in any way other than <laughs> other than getting it on Twitter. That was really the only way to follow along in real time. So I I appreciate their efforts. Thank you to them. You should know that I have posted a full recap of the event on my website at the Opportunity Zones database. You can find that recap at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. I'll have it linked in the show notes for today's episode. So here's a little bit more information about the hearing itself. First of all, it was a very popular hearing. There was a huge line to get in. The hearing started late because there were more people there than uh, could be passed through security in a timely fashion. And a lot of people got turned away because the auditorium was packed to capacity. There were over 200 people in attendance, and there were roughly two dozen speakers who spoke. There were 23 groups of speakers that were scheduled. One speaker failed to appear, and then a a couple of the groups of speakers had multiple speakers um, at the podium at the same time. First of all, who spoke at this thing? So the individuals who spoke represented... A, a wide variety of different stakeholders in the Opportunity Zones program. There were representatives from local economic development leaders. There were working groups from different accounting and legal firms across the country. There were policymakers, nonprofit advocacy groups, economic research firms, legal bar associations, private investment firms, consulting firms. And there was even one representative who spoke on behalf of a Native American community at the hearing last Thursday as well. And here are some of the topics that were covered. And I'm going to present this in roughly the order that these topics first appeared or, or were first mentioned by the speakers. Opportunity Zone business qualification requirements. That was the first topic that was brought up, and it was echoed throughout the day by several of the speakers uh, clarification was requested for Opportunity Zone business investment. Last week, my guest on the podcast was Craig Bernstein, and he mentioned at one point that you know for every question we have on real estate, we have 10 questions about business, and he's absolutely right. There were a lot of speakers who requested guidance on business qualification and, and business eligibility under the Opportunity Zones program. Several speakers brought up the 70% and 90% asset test requirements and how those are treated. There were several speakers who brought up community impact reporting and data reporting and and program effectiveness measurements, Uh, reinvestment of interim gains, substantial improvement test for operating businesses, multi-asset funds. 
and how those are treated, especially when it comes to exiting. Uh, two or three different speakers wanted additional clarification on combining opportunity zones with other tax credits, such as the historic tax credit, the new markets tax credit, and the low-income housing tax credit. One speaker brought up how land value exclusion could potentially lead to predatory activity. One speaker brought up the small business investment company framework and how that could be applied to opportunity zones. Another speaker brought up using opportunity zones for veteran housing. A few speakers discussed the topic of gentrification risks and the potential for negative impact on minority communities. One speaker brought up Section 469, Passive Activity Losses and Credits Limited, and how that would apply to investments made in Qualified Opportunity Funds. Qualified Opportunity Fund Asset Sales was a topic that was brought up on multiple occasions, how those would be treated, and if those could qualify as an exit strategy, or if a fund were to sell assets, if it could then take the proceeds from those assets and invest in different Qualified Opportunity Zone businesses or Qualified Opportunity Zone business property. Debt refinance proceeds and how those are treated. Employee stock ownership plans. Feeder partnerships. Carried interest. Interaction of Section 752, treatment of certain liabilities, and how that interacts with Qualified Opportunity Fund liabilities. Grantor trust tax liability treatment. And then there was one speaker toward the end who represented a Native American community who requested clarification on treatment of ground leases, specifically in regards to tribal land. So in all, there were 23 groups of speakers, and those were, I think those were most of the topics that were covered. Each group of speakers was allotted 10 minutes to testify. What I'll do now is I'll go through each speaker one by one and summarize what each one of them had to say. The first speaker was Stefan Pryor and a few other members of the state economic development executives. Uh, Stefan Pryor is the Rhode Island Secretary of Commerce, and he spoke on the importance of clarifying Opportunity Zone business qualification requirements. That's a topic that comes up a lot during the course of this hearing. He was the first, he, he was the first speaker, and <laughs> it was the first topic he brought up. Um, he requested additional guidance on which Opportunity Zone businesses are going to qualify for the tax breaks under the program. He also sought flexibility for the reinvestment of interim gains and flexibility for new funds in regards to the 90% test. And he also encouraged simple public reporting requirements, which is another topic that we'll hear from a lot of other speakers on. A lot of speakers during the hearing requested some sort of reporting. Uh, the second speaker who was scheduled was Jeron Levi, uh, she failed to appear, though. She was going to speak on behalf of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. Jaron is the Policy and Government of Affairs Director for the NCRC, and like I said, she uh, did not appear for her time slot, and she did not end up speaking at the hearing on that day, but she was expected to speak, at least according to her public comment letter, or the public comment letter from the NCRC, it was expected that she was going to recommend some job training requirements, some workforce training requirements under the under the program. And she was also going to seek oversight by additional federal agencies, including the Housing and Urban Development, the IRS, SEC, 
and Small Business Administration, she wants the Opportunity Zone program to have some sort of accountability to those federal agencies. And she also was going to discuss the ability to add Opportunity Zones in future years. I believe it would take an act of Congress to change the Opportunity Zones or to add to the list in future years, but it was a topic that she was intending to bring up had she, uh, had she appeared for her speaking slot. Uh, speaker number three, who actually spoke second, were members of the Novogradic Opportunity Zones Working Group based in San Francisco. They were Michael Novogradic and John Sharetti. And they addressed three key points. One was valuation methods for applying the 90% and 70% asset tests. They suggested that funds and businesses should be allowed to use unadjusted cost basis method to value tangible assets. They also wanted clarification on the definition of substantial improvement as it pertains to businesses. And they also recommended a 31-month grace period for Opportunity Zone businesses to qualify much in the same way that real estate developments have a 31-month grace period, uh, Michael and John requested the same for Opportunity Zone businesses. Speaker number four was John Lettieri from the Economic Innovation Group. He is their president and CEO now that uh, Steve Glickman has moved on to his own consulting firm. Steve, by the way, uh, spoke toward the end of the hearing. I'll get to his comments uh, toward the end of this podcast today. But back to John now, he remarked also on the 90% rule and the 70% asset test, much in the same way that uh, the Novogratic group did before him. He discussed the treatment of interim gains, wanted clarification on that, and included in his original comment letter from EIG and, and accompanying members of their coalition that they're working with, they included some remarks on removing barriers that prevent multi-asset funds from forming. And yeah, the issue of multi-asset funds versus single-asset funds is, is a big one in this space because of the exit requirements requiring that the at the investor level that, that the investor dispose of his interest in the fund. We're not quite sure at this point how asset sales would be treated under the Opportunity Zones program, but but as it stands right now, without further regulation from the IRS, it, it looks like, just based on the legislation, that asset sales uh, would really not do any good when it comes to being able to qualify for preferential tra- tax treatment under the program. So that kind of inhibits multi-asset funds from forming because of the difficulty of being able to sell an interest in, in multi-asset funds, uh, the, the difficulty in finding suitable buyers. The buyers would rather possibly buy just one asset at a time or, or groups of assets instead of instead of buying interests in, in an entire multi-asset fund. Uh, John's letter also encouraged rules that would enable fund investment in operating businesses as well as real estate projects. So again, he, he spoke about operating business eligibility requirements and, and clarification on that. And he also, in his letter at least, uh, touched upon some reporting requirements. So again, several speakers requested some sort of reporting requirement. Speaker number five was Carl Curitan. He is the National Minority Technology Council founder and executive chairman. They're one of those uh, advocacy groups that spoke. And he addressed the potential for qualified opportunity funds to fund new and small businesses, not just real estate. You know, again, I mean, that that comment's going to be echoed throughout the day. And 
He also encouraged Treasury to work with the Small Business Administration. He, he, wanted, he wants Treasury to work with the SBA to provide initial regulatory flexibility analysis to the chief counsel for advocacy of the, uh, of the Small Business Administration. So he, want, he just wants some integration of this program with the SBA, essentially. And you know, like others before him, he also spoke about how crucial it was for Treasury to finally put together some sort of uh, definition of qualification requirements for business. Speaker number six was Fran Siegel, representing the U.S. Impact Investing Alliance. She's their executive director. Uh, you should know that they recently partnered with the Beak Center for Social Impact and Innovation at Georgetown University uh, just about, I think, a week or maybe two weeks prior to the hearing. Um, those two organizations crafted the Opportunity Zones reporting framework. So here's that reporting requirement again. You should go check out their reporting framework. You can you can find it at ozframework.org. I'll have a link to that in the show notes today. Fran spoke about the importance of data collection and impact reporting to determine the effectiveness of the program. And she actually went a step further. She even cited IRS statutory authority to impose such a requirement. So we'll see if if IRS and Treasury act on all these recommendations that some reporting be required. I I hadn't expected this much pushback from the community of uh, wanting of, of a desire to have impact reporting. But the more I hear it, the more I'm convinced that you know, some level of reporting from someone at some point might come in handy, at the very least, to just measure the effectiveness of the program. Speaker number seven was Stockton Williams, executive director for the National Council of State Housing Agencies, focusing on affordable housing. Uh, and he recommended that the IRS implement regulations to expand and preserve affordable housing. Uh, he wanted to make sure that First of all, he wants to have some sort of requirement that affordable housing uh, be expanded under this program. And he also is calling for the prevention of removal or conversion of existing affordable housing. He does not want existing affordable housing to be torn down or converted into luxury housing under the guise of the Opportunity Zones program. He also touched upon vacant land treatment. And he also requested guidance on leveraging Opportunity Zones incentives with other tax credit programs, such as the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit, the Historic Tax Credit, and the New Markets Tax Credit. Speaker number eight was Lori Chapman, representing the Enterprise Community Partners. She's president of the Enterprise Community Loan Fund, which launched one of the nation's first Opportunity Zone funds, the Rivermont Enterprise Emergent Communities Fund. And in her comments, Lori stressed the importance of obtaining transaction-level data from qualified opportunity funds so that the program could be properly evaluated, uh, just like several of the speakers before her. Again, a lot of people want some sort of reporting requirement, some sort of, some sort of transparency when it comes to the data. Where are these funds being invested and like the speaker before her, like Stockton Williams, she also requested guidance on how to combine the Opportunity Zone incentives with existing tax credits. She stressed concern at two of the proposed rules. One, she cautioned that excluding the value of land from the substantial improvement test could lead to predatory activity. 
And two, she suggested that the 70% asset test be higher for real estate investments. And I think she makes a pretty good point there. For for businesses, perhaps the 70% asset test makes sense. But for real estate, all of your real estate assets should be in the opportunity zone. It, it, it seems to me like that asset test could be much higher than 70%. Speaker number nine was Brett Palmer, representing the Small Business Investor Alliance. He's president of the SBIA. And he compared small business investment companies to qualified opportunity funds. And he, and he basically argued that the SBIC program their structure and the results from that program could help inform regulations on opportunity zones, and he encouraged the IRS to look more closely at the SBIC in regards to that. Speaker number 10 was Reed Bennett from herohomes.com and Zero to 60 Inc. based in Birmingham, Michigan. He's their CEO and founder, and he was basically there to... He wants the IRS to treat the opportunity zones program in a very tolerant fashion, at least out of the gate. He wants very few regulatory restrictions, and he thinks that that's, that, that sandbox approach is going to allow for wide-ranging and even unpredictable innovation and creativity. Uh, he brought up his firm, Zero to 60 Inc., and HeroHomes.com, which helps build veteran housing and offers veteran housing solutions. He brought that company up his own company as an example of uh, creative and innovation that couldn't really be predicted by the IRS. So he he was really just there speaking to encourage a tolerant regulatory environment, at least initially out of the gate. Speaker number 11 was William Michael Cunningham, founder and CEO of Creative Investment Research in Washington, D.C. And he expressed caution regarding the Opportunity Zones program. He warned in his public comment letter, that, quote, many communities of color are at risk for rapid dislocation, end quote. And he even referred to the program as possibly becoming, quote, gentrification on steroids, end quote. So during his testimony, while he was speaking, he focused on two issues primarily. One, he recommended regulations that would prohibit certain politicians, namely the president of the United States, senators, congressmen, and state governors from personally benefiting from the program. Number two, he suggested using Ethereum blockchain technology to track and report Opportunity Zones investment social impact. So again, another proponent of some sort of reporting requirement, uh, albeit this time a fintech solution, Ethereum blockchain technology. He was, I, think, I believe he was the only one to mention blockchain technology during the course of the hearing. But once again, that idea of a reporting requirement comes up. Speaker number 12, or in the speaker number 12 slot, were two lawyers representing the State Bar of Texas. There was Adam Hardin, who is a tax attorney at Norton Rose Fulbright, and Chris Goodrich, a partner at Crady, Jewett, McCulley, and Horan. Uh, They spoke together on behalf of the tax section of the State Bar of Texas, as I mentioned, and they focused on Section 469 and how it would apply to qualified opportunity fund investments. And additionally, like a couple of the other speakers before them, uh, namely Mike Novogratik and company, they voiced support for the 70% test and using unadjusted cost basis for the 70% 
and 90% tests. Following this speaker, the IRS hearing adjourned for a brief recess, and we'll do the same. We'll be right back after this break. Hi, I'm Jimmy Atkinson, host of the Opportunity Zones podcast and founder of the Opportunity Zones database at opportunitydb.com. Are you an Opportunity Zone fund sponsor, real estate developer, service provider, or other operator in the Opportunity Zone space? The Opportunity Zones database now offers multiple sponsorship and advertising opportunities that can help get your fund, project, or service in front of a targeted audience. To learn more about who uses our site, who listens to our podcast, how to get your fund, project, or service listed with us, and to download our media kit with information on additional sponsorship opportunities, please visit opportunitydb.com advertise. Now, on with the show. In speaker slot number 13 was Jill Homan representing the working group of Baker Tilly Virchow Kraus, her own Javelin 19 investments, and Nixon Peabody. And she asked for easing of the 180-day investment period, and she also spoke on the reasonable cause exception, active trader business definition, safe harbor for qualified opportunity funds owning qualified opportunity zone business property, and original use for vacant property. She wanted clarification on all of those issues. Speaker number 14 was Kevin Kimball from the Financial Services Innovation Coalition in Washington, D.C. And Kevin was the one speaker at the hearing on Thursday who is 100% against the program entirely. So he used his speaking time to express opposition to the Opportunity Zones program. He cited concern that the program would only benefit the largest and wealthiest developers at the expense of minority communities, at the expense of rural communities, and at the expense of the nation as a whole. He asked that certain percentage of qualified opportunity funds be distributed to minorities or invested in rent-controlled housing. That, of course, does not fall under the purview of IRS and would likely take an act of Congress and seems highly unlikely. Speaker number 15 was Dan Cullen. He's a Chicago-based Baker McKenzie partner, and he was in Washington, D.C., speaking of the hearing, representing the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives, IPA. He argued that basis step-up election for qualified opportunity fund investors upon disposition after a 10-year holding period should extend to qualified opportunity fund asset sales as well. Essentially, essentially that could solve the multi-asset fund problem, and it would make it much easier for investors of, of all types of funds to dispose of the fund at the end of the holding period. Because as I mentioned earlier, currently as it stands, the investor is required to sell his interests in the fund, which could prove problematic when buyers may typically be more interested in purchasing assets. He also requested clarification on treatment of debt refinancing proceeds. And he wanted to know what would happen if a qualified opportunity funds were to sell assets and then roll those proceeds into new qualified opportunity zone property, if that's allowable under the program. Speaker number 16 was Frank Altman. 
He's the CEO of the Community Reinvestment Fund in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He emphasized the importance of community impact during his testimony. And he also compared the Opportunity Zones program to the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund, the CDFI fund. And he discussed the role of CDFIs in community development lending in Opportunity Zones. And like other speakers before him, he had questions about and was really seeking guidance on equity investments. Uh, specifically, he, he was regarding, he, he wanted some clarity on equity investments in existing operating businesses that are located in Opportunity Zones. He also was the one who brought up the term rich uncle and rich aunt when he spoke of uh, qualified opportunity funds. He, he suggested that uh, opportunity funds could be rich uncles and rich aunts that could provide capital to specifically to minority entrepreneurs and low-wealth entrepreneurs in, in opportunity zones. So Frank spoke on two things, mainly a community benefit aspect and also seeking some additional clarity on operating business eligibility. Oh, if you're with me still, thank you. And we're getting toward the end here. There were 23 speakers total. We're on speaker number 17 now. This was Paul St. Pierre uh, representing his own firm, PSP Advisors, in Winter Park, Florida. Paul actually called me uh, before he spoke, probably about a week before the hearing, and he, he, he wanted to talk about his public comment letter, which at the time I had not read, and I have since read it. And it's fascinating the, some of the points he brings up that haven't been mentioned by anybody to this point. He was really there to advocate on behalf of the Qualified Opportunity Fund investor at the investor level. He has a lot of concerns. In particular, he has concerns about what tax compliance failure at the fund level could mean for investors. He also stressed concern at investors being compelled to exit after a 10-year holding period in order to take advantage of the tax benefit because these exits typically happen in very inefficient private markets and it can be it can be difficult to do. And I think several speakers before him spoke on this topic to some extent, some of them asking slightly different questions, you know, uh, wanting clarification on whether asset sales could meet the definition of disposition of the fund. But mainly, there are a lot of people asking questions on, on the exit and how to go about doing it and what would qualify. And, and it is a cause of concern. I know there's a lot of people trying to rush their money in before the end of 2019 uh, but, you know, if you're an investor, you really need to do your due diligence and make sure there's some exit plan in place at the end of the 10 years. I know it's a decade off or decade or more off. In fact, you have until the end of 2047 to dispose of of the fund. But, you know, you should just keep that in mind at least. And I, I think that was part of what Paul was requesting was some some additional clarification on that. And he also had some concerns about determining fair market value at key checkpoints. So at the five-year mark, at the seven-year mark, at the end of 2026, you know, where there's language around fair market value, but how is fair market value determined and who determines it? Because the investor is going to be incentivized to undervalue fair market of their investments at those key checkpoints, you know, and that's going to that could potentially lead to a lot of fraud, 
a lot of tax fraud and and how do we prevent that and and who is going to determine fair market value essentially at those at those key checkpoints and then he also discussed chain link deferral of gains and I won't get into that but I I do have a link to his full outline and and public comment letter as I do the public comment letters and or outlines of of all of these speakers on the show notes page at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. So speaker number 18 now, we're down to our final few. Speaker number 18 was Christopher Mackin, representing his own firm. Uh, He's founder and president of Ownership Associates, which is a firm that helps create employee stock ownership plans for different businesses in their community. And that's what he spoke on was ESOPs, and he suggested a revision to the proposed regulations that would make it much easier to create ESOPs under the Opportunity Zones program and and have those ESOPs qualify. Speaker number 19 was Steve Glickman. He was the former CEO of the Economic Innovation Group and one of the lead architects of the Opportunity Zones legislation. So there are few people better able to speak on the intent of the legislation than Steve, and uh, these days, he's the CEO of Develop Advisors. He has his own Opportunity Zones consulting firm. And his public comment letter doesn't say much, so I'm relying now on the tweets from Mike Novogratik to summarize the 10 points that Steve very briefly hit upon during, during his 10-minute hearing testimony. And they are, and I'll quickly go through these. Number one, fund ramp-up time. Number two, treatment of reinvested interim gains. Number three, feeder partnerships. Number four, treatment of land. Number five, the substantial improvement test. Number six, debt refinancing. Number seven, depreciation recapture. Number eight, the 50% income test. Number nine, exiting from funds. And number 10, carried interest. And how all of those are treated under the Opportunity Zones program. Steve was requesting further clarification from the IRS and, and had some suggestions on on regulation on each of those. Speaker number 20 was Mark Walensky. He's a Mineola, New York-based tax law group partner at Meltzer, Lip, Goldstein, and Brightstone. And he was in Washington representing the American Bar Association section of taxation. He testified on two main topics. Number one, the interaction of Section 752 with Qualified Opportunity Fund Liabilities. And number two, the treatment of land in regard to asset tests. Again, the issue of land comes up. It's come up a few times now. Speaker number 21 was Regina Stodiker. She is a corporate tax lawyer at Howard & Howard in Royal Oak, Michigan. And she remarked on two topics during her testimony. One, asset sales by qualified opportunity funds and how they would pertain to proceed reinvestment and exit strategy. And this topic's been brought up a few times now. What happens when a qualified opportunity fund sells an asset with, you know, before the 10-year holding period is up or even after, if if that fund could then take the proceeds from those asset sales and invest immediately or possibly within a 180-day period or possibly within some other time period into into another uh, qualified opportunity zone business or qualified opportunity zone business property, you know there there needs to be clarification there on whether that's allowable or not and under what time frame. And again, the exit strategy issue comes up. Are asset sales can asset sales work as an exit strategy? And then the second topic she 
touched on was treatment of tax liability for grantor trusts investing in opportunity zones. Speaker number 22, representing the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian Community in Maricopa County, Arizona, was Scott Dacey. Scott Dacey is the PACE government relations partner, and he spoke primarily on problems with opportunity zone structures on tribal lands. So tribal lands are held in a trust by the federal government and cannot be sold. Typically what happens when a Native American tribal community wants development on their land, they'll use a long-term lease. Sometimes it's a 99-year or 100-year long-term ground lease. They'll, they'll lease out to a third-party developer. And he wants he was requesting some clarification on that and was and was requesting favorable treatment of such leases which are typically used for uh, for tribal lands. You've made it to the end, everybody. So this is speaker number twenty-three, Todd Leverett. He is the legacy business program manager at Democracy at Work Institute in Oakland, California. And his testimony focused on ESOPs as well, much like the gentleman a few slots before him, he he wants the goals of employee ownership structures such as ESOPs to be aligned with opportunity zones, and he recommended that ESOPs be included as a qualifying investment mechanism. He also requested flexible definition of the substantial improvement test and recommended capital deployment timelines that would be favorable to ESOPs. And that concluded the testimony from the speakers. Again, this hearing took place last Thursday, February 14th. It lasted over five hours. There were over 200 in attendance, standing room only crowd, packed to the brim. They had to turn away people who weren't speaking. It was, it, there was that much interest in this hearing. For more information on the IRS hearing and for my recap in text format, and for links to all of the participants' public comment letters and outlines of their testimony, you can find those on my show notes page for this podcast episode by heading over to the Opportunity Zones database website at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Be sure to join me again next week for another episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast. And in the weeks to come, we'll keep covering Opportunity Zones for as long as we can, as long as they're relevant. And when the next tranche of regulations comes out, I'll have a special guest who will join me on the show to help me break down those next set of regulations, and we'll see what we can do with that. So again, thanks for listening today, and I look forward to the next episode. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.